I thus address the world through the medium of the latest wonderful invention, so that my voice, like my great show, will reach future generations and be heard centuries after I have joined the great, and as I believe, happy majority. Welcome to Becoming Barnum, the journey to fame and fortune, a podcast presented by the Barnum Museum in Bridgeport, Connecticut, and based on their award-winning blog series. Support for this project is presented to the Barnum Museum from the City of Bridgeport American Rescue Plan Act Funds, Peoples United, a division of M&T Bank, and the Connecticut Humanities and National Endowment for the Humanities as part of the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. The Barnum Museum has a special treasure in its collection, a 750-page copybook of letters written by Phineas Taylor Barnum when he was traveling in Europe in the 1840s, introducing his young protege, General Tom Thumb, to high society and royalty, as well as millions of ordinary people. Barnum's lively letters to friends, family members, and business associates reveal him more completely as a person at times struggling mightily to make the three-year tour a success, all the while directing the management of his American museum from afar. They also offer insights into Barnum as a husband, father, and nephew, and as a mentor to the child actor-entertainer whose popularity resulted in their meteoric rise to fame and fortune. In his mid-30s at the time, Barnum proved himself a tireless go-getter, calculating risk-taker, and astute entrepreneur decades before his name was attracting crowds to the greatest show on earth. These letters offer a window into the hard-scrabble era of show business, revealing how Barnum went about acquiring, hiring, and commissioning attractions, and promoting his museum and the General Tom Thumb Tour in Europe. Join us as we travel back in time to learn, through Barnum's own words, about the real person behind the legendary P.T. Barnum. Trumpets, Venus, and a young man, all heading to America. Now, we'll follow up on the status of new attractions Barnum planned for his American museum in New York, and learn about another of his good turns to help out a friend. The latter is mainly interesting for the window it provides on Barnum's views of America, as he explains them to the London-based Mr. and Mrs. Collins. The Collins, Barnum told his museum manager, are the best friends I have in Europe. Barnum's November 10, 1845 letter to Mr. Collins, addressed as Dear Sir, seems to hide some details about the relationship. It's not clear whether Barnum intentionally failed to mention a name, or if perhaps, though unlikely, he'd forgotten the name of a guest who had been with the Collins family for a while. Apparently the guest had been ill, but was improved, and was also making some progress in learning English. Barnum hoped that when he next saw the Collins family, he would find their guest in perfectly restored health, and able to salute me in good English. The next remark suggests that Barnum knew full well the name of this mystery person, for he wrote, If such shall happily be the case, to you and your lady will certainly be due all praise, as well as my everlasting gratitude. Hmm. Does this gratitude underlie Barnum's motivation for the good turn? 
Apparently, the Collins had a son, 18 years old, who had learned the art of saddle-making and was a fine young fellow of excellent habits and of learning and general intelligence, and could speak and write in both French and English. As Barnum explained to manager Fortis Hitchcock, the young man's parents wanted him to see the world and at the same time to break off a love match which he was forming. Barnum stepped in to offer Hitchcock's help in getting the Collins's son situated with a job in a respectable saddle manufactory. He directed Hitchcock to make enquiries through your friends in New York, Newark, and Bridgeport, and if possible, engage him a place to work at his trade so that when he arrives, he will not be still on expense. Adding that it would be necessary to find him a private boarding house, where it will not cost him much to live, he explained that the young man's parents are in middling circumstances only, so they send him in the steerage. To Mr. Collins, Barnum advised that he send his son with at least one good ham and some salt beef, as well as other provisions to sustain him through the long voyage. He recommended an ample supply of food and plenty of books to read, since the ship could be detained if the winds were not favorable. Sailing from London on November 20th, the ship Mediator would probably arrive about Christmas time. Writing to Mr. Collins, Barnum assured him, I am confident that neither he, his mother, nor you will ever regret his going, for no country on earth holds out better prospects to industry, perseverance, and good habits than does America. In that country, a man who conducts himself properly may succeed in all he aspires to, and there is no nobility except nature's noblemen, that is, Native Americans. There is no aristocracy except that which is founded on talent and good habits. No matter whether a man is a banker or a shoemaker, a legislator or a barber, all receive the same respect, and the one is received in as high society as the other, provided there is no stain upon his character. Your protege will do well to remember this difference between the society of the old and new world, and he can vastly profit by it. Never let him be ashamed to acknowledge that he works for a living, for all do that in America, and industry is therefore a great honor. Endeavoring to ensure the young man would feel as comfortable as possible upon arrival, Barnum suggested that Hitchcock ask an Englishman friend named Davidson to take him at once to Sweeney's, as that is more like the English way of living, and he may conclude to live there and hire a cheap lodging room. I have given him letters to you and Philo F. Barnum, and hope before he arrives one of you will find him a place to work at his trade. The remainder of Barnum's November 10th letter to Hitchcock concerns the business of the museum, including recently shipped novelties calculated to be a good draw for the holidays, and investments in major attractions for the coming year. Soon, we'll be discussing one of Barnum's potential investments that warrants its own episode. It's a tough story. And for now, explore the mechanical and optical wonders he had in store for his audiences. Fittingly, the mechanical trumpets were being shipped on a vessel named St. Nicholas that Barnum hoped would reach New York by or before Christmas, estimating four to five weeks in transit after leaving the port of Havre. These mechanical trumpets were not destined to become a new exhibit inside the American Museum. Rather, they were to be installed outside on one of the balconies facing Broadway. The idea to entice passers-by into the museum with music was not new. Barnum was already employing a live band to play from the balconies. But the mechanical setup would save him money, 
and he instructed his manager to dismiss the musicians once the trumpets were in place. Barnum informed Hitchcock that, The directions for using it will be contained in the box, and I expect also to send them in this letter in French. It is managed much like an organ, and I shall have some barrels made to play Yankee Doodle, Hail Columbia, etc., etc. He went on to explain, There are no automaton figures with it, so you must put it on the balcony and put a boy behind to turn it. But don't let the boy be seen. Let the people suppose the machine is wound up. If it is too damned loud on the first balcony, you must raise it to the second. Of course, you will discharge your band after you receive this, and the mechanical trumpets might be played at intervals day and night. Barnum also reported that he had paid 1,000 francs for the mechanical trumpets, plus owed the as-yet-unknown cost of crating and shipping them to America. But he warned Hitchcock, Let no person know that it cost less than 2,500 francs, for if the other museums want them, they must pay me that. He followed with the instruction, Tell them I can get them one for $500 besides expense of freight, in all, say, $510. I beat the man down considerably to get him to this. Later in the same letter, Barnum reported he had saved $400 on another attraction by bargaining for 2,000 francs less. And based on that information, we can calculate a tidy profit by selling the mechanical trumpets for over $500 after purchasing them for $200 plus shipping. Barnum's letter also repeated information he had mentioned previously about sending the physioscope, an amazing optical invention he had acquired in London, and a few new slides to refresh the Dissolving Views shows at the museum. These would be received by fellow showman Moses Kimball in Boston, who had been instructed to dispatch them to Hitchcock in New York. The reason for that arrangement is not certain, but in a letter to Kimball, Barnum advised him that he should not need to pay U.S. customs duties on these items, since they were scientific instruments. As we learned from earlier letters, Barnum felt he'd been burned by the exorbitant duties levied on his other shipments from Paris to New York. Perhaps he thought there would be less hassle with U.S. Customs by sending the crate to Kimball in Boston. In any case, it was intended that Hitchcock would have the physioscope and the slides in hand in December. Barnum remarked to him, I think you had better not bring it out till Christmas. However, do as you please about that. I think if you keep that and the extra views for the holidays, and then announce them strong as new features, they will draw and add it to the capital attractions which you now have. They will please. Turning to the future, he wrote with great anticipation concerning the purchase of a splendid and colossal new attraction for 1846. Barnum apprised Hitchcock, I have engaged the panorama of Napoleon's funeral. The same artist is doing it whom Molteni was to employ, and for which he was to charge me 8,000 francs. I have engaged it for 6,000 francs, thus saving $400. I shall also introduce the funeral of Lafayette, costing perhaps 800 or 1,000 francs more. They are to be done in July. The news of this coup must have surprised Hitchcock, since only a month before Barnum had written him to say, I have given up trying to buy the diorama of Napoleon's funeral. That conclusion had followed remarks in his August 18th letter, stating he was trying to locate an existing, and possibly worse for wear, panorama depicting Napoleon's funeral. Because opticians, Messieurs Molteni and Company, demands to commission a new one, and are too great for me. They ask 10,000 francs for the new panoramas. 
that is to say, 8,000 for that of Napoleon and 2,000 for Versailles. True to form, Barnum did not give up and instead circumvented middlemen Molteni and Company by approaching the artist. He had also been pursuing another hoped-for acquisition that was briefly mentioned in a letter of August 25, 1845. Barnum had said he would try to purchase an anatomical Venus in Paris. This was a popular kind of novelty, though clearly not for all tastes, in which a beautiful female figure, unclothed and made of wax to give a very lifelike appearance, was constructed with large openings that revealed replicated organs of the human body, organs that could be removed in layers. Dissectable venuses were first made in the late 1700s for the purpose of teaching anatomy. However, they were not standardized representations of the human body devoid of humanity. Anatomical venuses were, as the name implies, idealized female bodies intended on some level to be visually seductive, as a counterpoint to the discomforting, even revolting exposure of human organs and entrails. They were not only made for medical teaching. As museum attractions, anatomical venuses surely prompted strong, visceral responses in viewers, though perhaps different from today's audiences, who would be more likely to think them bizarre or even repulsive. For Barnum, an anatomical Venus matched his vision to offer entertainments that were educational and stimulated wonder and curiosity. Barnum therefore proudly shared the following news with Hitchcock in his November 10th letter. I have also nearly engaged an anatomical Venus. The price was 4,500 francs. The man now offers to make it for 2,500, to be done in February or March. Thus you see, I am going it. Barnum was on a roll and had more plans in the works. But that goes without saying because clearly Barnum was always thinking ahead. We're now halfway through his copybook of letters written between July 1845 and May 1846, and there is no reason to think that the second half will become dull. Ahead, we have a month in Paris with General Tom Thumb's entourage, and then we'll all head off to London if Barnum sticks to the schedule he has proposed. The itinerary is certain to generate interesting news in Barnum's letters and give us new perspectives on his life while we continue to weave the storylines together. Stay tuned. Thanks for listening to this episode of Becoming Barnum, The Journey to Fame and Fortune. This podcast was produced by the Barnum Museum. All episodes are based on the blog series Barnum's Letters from Abroad by Adrian St. Pierre, curator of the Barnum Museum. Editing and sound design are by Rui Pino, and narration by William Saris. Kathleen Marr is our executive director, and John Swing is our chief operations officer. Please visit our website at www.barnum-museum.org to learn more about the museum. Don't forget to connect with us on social media and visit the Barnum Museum's YouTube channel for behind-the-scenes presentations of our fascinating collections and more stories about the legendary showman. Please tune in next time as we continue our adventures in Europe with P.T. Barnum.